What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, welcome to a Wednesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. We're asking that question we ask every day, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love to have you answer that for us today. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. Uh, Michael McCall, our celebrity producer today. Matt Gubensky screening your phone calls. And Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every day, Dr. David Anders, how are you? Jack, I'm doing well. How about you? <coughs> Got an email here from Julie, and she says, Hi, Dr. Anders et al. I watched a couple of YouTube videos of you a while back about the Protestant Reformation where you spoke at length about both Luther and Calvin. One of the things I think I heard you say was that in his 95 thesis, Luther said, It wasn't the sale of indulgences that caused him to break away from the church, but the wholesale... but he wholesale rejected the entire concept of aiding someone's salvation. Is my recollection accurate? Almost. Almost. Thank you. Um, When Luther wrote the 95 Theses, at that point in time, he did not intend to leave the Catholic Church. Um, He saw himself as, uh, as a reformer within a long history of Catholic reformers. There have always been reformers in the Catholic Church, and he saw himself in continuity with them. He didn't think of a, forming a new ecclesial organization. Um, the, the quote you're referring to actually falls in the 1525 document on the bondage of the will, not the 95 Theses, which came out in 1517. In the bondage of the will... Uh, Luther was responding to Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was a Catholic humanist scholar and polemicist, who had written a treatise attacking Luther, and he chose for his subject the question of the bondage of the will or the freedom of the will. The Catholic doctrine is that we have free will, and Luther denied that we have free will. And Luther wrote a response to Erasmus, and the, the treatise has come down to history as Luther on the bondage of the will, And he salutes Erasmus, and he says, Erasmus, I think you're wrong, but I appreciate this about you, that everyone else who has attacked me has attacked me on trivial points. You alone have have struck at the heart of the matter, and I'm not going to refute your position, or at least I'm going to try to, but you've you've asked the right question. And in that context, Luther said that the papacy, uh, indulgences, and purgatory are mere trifles not worthy of debate. Those are Luther's words. Uh, in comparison to the gravity of the question of the freedom of the will, 
which for Luther meant, can we freely cooperate with God's grace? Or, or is salvation, big word coming here, monergistic? What monergism means is that the, not only the initiative, but the, but the act and the completion and the fulfillment of our salvation is entirely and uniquely a work of God's uh, activity. And mo- mono meaning one, energy meaning work. It's all God's work or we don't add anything to it. And Lutheranism is monergistic. Calvinism is monergistic, that salvation is something that God decides antecedently to grant you and then effectively imposes upon you without your free cooperation. The Catholic Church's position is that, yes, God offers us grace, uh, but our cooperation with grace is a necessary part of the, of the process of redemption. That's what Luther rejected. Um, that's what he said was the key issue and um, uh, far outweighing things like papacy or indulgences. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Dr. Anders writes, Ron, I am a Catholic and I'm marrying a woman outside the Catholic Church. It's my intention to have the marriage convalidated in the Catholic Church. Will this be sufficient to ensure that my marriage is a sacramental marriage? If not, what are my options to make it sacramental? All right, so this is, I'm going to give you an analogy. Your question is kind of like asking, I'm, um, I'm planning to rob a bank. After I've robbed the bank, if I go to confession, will I be in the state of grace? And you're asking me to, as it were, grant you permission to do something objectively wrong in the knowledge that you can rectify that at some point in the future. I don't, I don't want to be put in that position. I'm, I'm not going to tell you this is fine. This is not fine. It is objectively wrong for you to marry outside the church. So wait and do it right. Don't ask me for permission to marry outside the church and then want to know if you can get it fixed later on. I don't want to play that game. Now, I have to answer the question. So, yes, right, at some level, if you've done something wrong, there is a way to rectify it in the Catholic Church. If you rob a bank, you can go to confession. If you marry outside the church, you can have it convalidated. But for goodness sakes, man, like, you're a Catholic. Let's do what the church has asked you to do and not, not do the wrong thing and then worry about how we can fix it later. Go get married in the church. If you have to put your wedding off for six months or a year, put it off for six months or a year. There's no rush here. You're going to be married for a long time, hopefully, unless you're like 100 years old, right? You're going to be married for decades. Do the thing right. Marry in the church. You know, this is an epidemic in our society. Um, we We... If you've spent any time around any kind of an RCIA program, you're going to run across these situations where people will they'll look you square in the eye and they'll tell you, you know, yeah, I know what the church says about marriage, but, you know, I've got money down on the beach in Cabo. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you what do you think the what do you think the problem is? Where's the disconnect? I it, I'm sure it has something to do with the lack of marriage formation that we have in America well, that's part of it. I think world. there's more to it than that. We maybe come to this after the break. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. <coughs> 833-288-3986-It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders.
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. David, we're talking about, uh, in our culture in particular, and in the greater Catholic culture globally, uh, our seeming reluctance to follow the precepts of our Lord, especially when it comes to sexual topics and especially marriage. Yeah, so we were kind of chatting about this a little bit off the air, and I mean, it seems to me, I think a lot of people approach the religious question as basically consumers. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, take an idea here, or an image there, or a story there that will accord with more or less my conception of what the good life looks like, and I can sort of pick and choose to make that support, sustain my understanding. And and I think there's a lack of appreciation for to become Catholic is to change your way of life. Uh, it's to it's to be in the world in a radically different way, in a discontinuous way, uh, a way that is ultimately open to martyrdom, uh, to give my whole life in service to to God as He commands. And and then the the place of the church and all that. I mean, we're so accustomed to dom- denominationalism in the United States. The idea that you know well. You know, Baptists have one flavor of ice cream, and Methodists are another flavor of ice cream, and you know, maybe maybe Catholics are like a you know a a, a, a banana foster with you know flame on top. You know, they're really something special, but it's still just one other flavor of ice cream, and that's not the way the Catholic Church sees it, right? We the, the, the Church sees itself as a society that was founded intentionally by Christ, with a determinate form and constitution and set of doctrines and moral principles, and to enter into a Catholic way of life is to enter into a Catholic way of life. Um, you know, it's not just a change of denominations. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of lines open for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Betsy in Dearborn, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Betsy, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Andrews. Hi, gentlemen. I had called you last week, Dr. Andrews, and you told me to call back. I, it was about Reformation Day. Yeah. And sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solo deo gloria, solo Christus. And I was getting into a friendly debate online with a Protestant minister, I don't know which denomination, about works alone, works with faith, and who is saved and who isn't. And I said, and I used the example of what about the mafia? They believe in Christ, they do bad. Are you telling me they're going to heaven? And I wanted an eloquent way to say my point. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. In my judgment, when Catholics debate Protestants on the issue of faith and works, Catholics generally don't really understand what's at stake for the Protestant. And I think your typical Catholic, I think, has a shallow understanding of the Protestant position. And I don't think you can effectively confute them unless you really understand what they're saying. Um, the, the, there's a key term that gets left out of the discussion by Catholics. It's a Protestant word, and Catholics don't use it, so they don't know what it means. But I'm going to give you the word. The word is imputation. And what that means is that from the classical Protestant point of view, when a person has faith in Christ— God imputes, that's the big word, he imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer, meaning that he regards the believer as if he were Jesus, 
And so all the righteousness and the virtue and the good works that Christ has done, God regards as if they were done by the believer. Now, the believer has actually done nothing. He has done no good work. But God regards him as if he has acquired all the merit of Christ. And therefore, uh, he can accept him as worthy of salvation, but not for anything he's done intrinsically, but what Christ did on his behalf. It's an entirely vicarious notion of righteousness. Luther called, spoke of two kinds of righteousness. You know, our, our own righteousness, which is not worth very much, and then the righteousness that is ascribed to us for Jesus' sake. And, and so, you know, when, when Catholics don't understand that key Protestant claim, they will throw out a lot of arguments that, to a, to a Protestant, are just beside the point. And so I really think to, to deal with it properly, you have to go after that notion of imputation. And, and the reason that Protestants hold that doctrine is because St. Paul says that we are saved by faith and not by works of the law, and our model is Abraham, um, to whom God credited righteousness apart from works. And so they see that language of God crediting Abraham's faith as righteousness, and they recognize that you're saved by faith and not by works of the law, and they say, well, what other conclusion can you draw? This is the Protestant talking. What other conclusion can you draw other than uh, if we're credited as righteous through faith, it's not because of anything we've done, it's, it's what Christ's done on our behalf. So, so imputation is an inference uh, from this Pauline language about justification and works of the law. Now, why is all that wrong? Why is the Protestant wrong? Um, the Protestant's wrong because that's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul says that we're saved by faith and not works of the law, he's not saying that morality as such is irrelevant to our justification, or morality as such is irrelevant to our being accepted by God. He means, quite literally, works of the law, works of the Mosaic Code. We know this because it's what he says explicitly. In the book of Romans, he, he asks, is God the God of the Jews only or also of Gentiles? The thing that differentiates Jew from Gentiles is the Mosaic law. When Gentiles become Christians, do they have to follow the Mosaic code? Do they have to circumcise themselves and eat kosher food and all the rest of it? And Paul says no, because those, those literal prescriptions of the Mosaic code never moved a man to righteousness. They didn't, they didn't make a person genuinely righteous. It's not hearing the law, Paul says, that makes a man righteous. It's obeying the law. But we're powerless to obey the law, either in its ritual prescriptions or in its moral depths. What's necessary, Paul says, is a change of heart. If you get into Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to 29, Paul says that through faith, God grants us the Spirit. The Spirit circumcises our hearts, changes our character, and the man who has been thus changed fully meets what Paul calls the righteous requirements of the law. So what I can't do in my flesh, and what merely ritual prescriptions will never accomplish, God does in me by the work of the Holy Spirit. He makes it possible for me to genuinely love God and neighbor. Protestants just misunderstand the book of Romans. They misunderstand the book of Galatians. They misconstrue what Paul is saying, because Luther reads those books as if God were talking to 15th century Catholic monastics, and not first-century Jews and Christians. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Um, Jason's watching us on YouTube, David, and uh, our earlier conversation, he said, so my marriage of 25 years and the three children we raised were invalid in the eyes of the Church since we were not married in the Church and my wife is not a Catholic. Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, there's no such thing as an invalid child. 
right? So just that, that's, that's a category mistake of the highest order, right? There are no invalid children. All children are valid, okay? Um, uh, and I don't know what your situation was. So if, if you were Catholic and your wife was not Catholic at the time of your marriage— and you married someplace other than a Catholic church in front of a Catholic priest or deacon, and you did not seek a dispensation from your bishop, then yes, your marriage would be presumed to be invalid by the Catholic church. Now, uh, but there are, there are shades of nuance here, so let me give you one. Um, maybe you're just hearing about this for the first time now. Maybe no one told you 25 years ago that you were obligated to marry in the Catholic church, uh, and you didn't know, and you trusted your priest, Right, you, you you took the instruction you were given. You assumed people knew what they were talking about. You married in the Lutheran Church when you should have married in the Catholic Church, um, through no fault of your own. Well, if it's through no fault of your own, then it's no fault of your own, and that's not imputable to you as guilt. Now that you know, you have an obligation to have it convalidated in the Catholic Church, um, and so you know if if it's no fault of your own, we would not say that you were deprived of all grace. Uh, that you were outside of the scope of redemption, that's more than we can know, um, because you were invincibly ignorant. Um, however, if you did it obstinately, right, defiantly, saying, I don't care what the Catholic Church says, and I know I'm supposed to marry in the Church, but I'm not going to, well, then that's a little bit more dire situation, but it can easily be rectified. Donald is in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Donald, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yes, thank you. So my question was, if um, the Catholic teaching sees the creation of the secular state of Israel as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, like in premillennial dispensationalism, and then also, second question, if the Catholic Church uh, uh, teaching is that there will be a future seven-year period of tribulation with persecution from the Antichrist and seals and vials and trumpets and all that kind of stuff. I got you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, so the Catholic Church does not teach as a doctrine or a dogma that the modern state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Does not teach that, does not hold that. And so the way that we regard political, geopolitical events in the Middle East is with the kind of prudent natural judgment that you would bring to any international conflict, uh, that, um, that biblical prophecy is of no particular importance in, uh, in determining how to solve this dilemma, except insofar as the participants themselves may try to ground their positions in biblical prophecy. Right? Obviously, some of the players on the ground think that they are acting with God's approval uh, on, on, you know, on all sides of this conflict. Jewish, Christian, uh, is, uh, Muslim, you name it. Many of them think they're the God's agents here. The Catholic point of view is that, that uh, the nation-state of Israel, the modern nation-state of Israel, is, is basically irrelevant to the fulfillment of God's uh, eschatological purposes, except in the way that every nation has some sort of relevance. I mean, we're all we're all part of this program together, moving towards the eschaton. But this isn't some sort of particular fulfillment of uh, of Old Testament prophecy. Um, uh, as far as the Catholic view of the end times, antichrists and bowls and vials, uh, Church does acknowledge a, a an antichrist character, right? That biblical prophecy talks about. Uh, but it's not real specific about naming times and dates or particular individuals. Um, in fact, uh, Scripture warns against that kind of date-setting attitude, and 2,000 years of Christian history has proved that every attempt 
to identify some geopolitical figure with the biblical Antichrist has proved uh, disastrous and has really been terrible for culture and often leads to warfare and all kinds of terrible outcomes. So don't do that. Don't do that. Right. My own particular point of view, and you're not obligated to hold this, and, and Catholics aren't obligated to hold it. It's just my private opinion as a Catholic thinker, is that the book of Revelation talks about uh, this Antichrist character it's fairly obvious to me and to a lot of biblical scholars that, that, that he's indicating Nero Caesar, who, of course, is a first-century character and persecutor of the Church. And there's good textual reason to believe that St. John uh, of Patmos had Nero Caesar in mind. And to the extent that that text is relevant for today, it would be insofar as someone like a Nero Caesar, the tyrannical political and religious authority that sets itself against God and the Church, is a perennial part of human culture. St. John uh, the Apostle, or the Elder, writes in his epistles that there have been many antichrists. And so we're always going to find a candidate for that position, right? I mean, you know, some people thought Napoleon was the antichrist. Some people thought Hitler was the antichrist. Some people thought the Pope was the antichrist, right? There's always going to be a candidate. As some of those claims will have a note of plausibility about them, but not as a final eschatological antichrist. So, you know, was there a sense in which Hitler was an antichrist type of figure? Well, of course, yes. That doesn't mean he is the eschatological antichrist, and I think trying to pinpoint that historical character is an, ab is an abortive operation in our time. It would be best spent on actually trying to achieve lasting peace in the Middle East. So let me ask you a question. All right. <clears throat> so we are essentially in a roundabout—not even such a roundabout way, but throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged— primarily to focus on our own particular judgment, right. basically. So with that being said, why go into so much detail about the end times? Why does Scripture go yes. into so much detail about the end times? Yes. Well, that's a darn good question. You know, I'll take it up with the Holy Spirit and John of Patmos when we, when we see them, you know. But, but the, the perspective of the whole New Testament is, is, is apocalyptic in that the Old Testament prophets had, had anticipated a coming kingdom of God when God would vindicate his people and, and meet out judgment upon the nations. And Jesus' contemporaries had a lot of ideas about how that was going to come into play, right? Um, and uh, and they, they, they didn't all agree with each other. They had different programs for how to bring that about. Christ seems to be on that bandwagon. He, he seems to be speaking about an imminent arrival of an eschatological kingdom that would turn things upside down. But he has a twist, we read this in Luke 17 when he says, the kingdom of God is within you. Or in the Gospel of John, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's not looking for the overthrow of nation states and the establishment of a Jewish state in Israel or Christ sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and ruling over the nations and camels being you know, laden with gold being led into Jerusalem. That's not the kind of kingdom that he has in mind. He has uh, in mind a kingdom that would rule in men's hearts and, uh, and lead to the transformation of their character, and ultimately lead us into the eschaton. Um, you know, St. Paul dealt with people, particularly in Thessalonia, who they were so keen on the imminent arrival of Jesus that they thought, some of them thought they might have missed it. Or they were worried that if some of their friends and neighbors died, that they might miss it. If Jesus came back and they were already dead, that they had missed out on the, on the eschaton. And, and Paul says, you know, that's, that's, that's the wrong frame of reference. It's not going to happen that way. And, you know, the book of Revelation is so obscure. It's so wrapped up in, in mystery and figure that, to a certain extent, I think it can take your mind off of—it uh, can be read very differently than the way people often read it, and, and take your mind off of these particularizing, 
historical circumstances that we're in and move really more into a kind of mythic zone that has a sort of perennial applicability. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Catholic Register is America's most trusted Catholic news source from a comprehensive view of the world, with a comprehensive view of the world from a Catholic perspective. And you can give a gift subscription or subscribe yourself and save up to 42% off the cover price. Visit ncregister.com today and you can receive daily, weekly, or alert emails from the register. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. And also our friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio in the great state of Iowa need to hear from you next week. They're airing their annual fall pledge drive next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in the Sioux City, Storm Lake area or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio station. 833-288-288. EWTN's our toll-free number. We're going to talk to Chris in just a moment in Frisco, Texas. But first, Katie is watching on Facebook, and she wants to know, David, how can we embrace the seemingly impossible marriage in today's world, especially if you follow the teachings of the church and know the right and wrong ways of getting into it? Um, yeah, thanks. I wrote a book about that, actually, called <laughs> The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. I mean, the Catholic teaching on marriage is difficult, uh, Jesus acknowledged that it was difficult. The apostles acknowledged that it was difficult. Um, but it calls us to lifelong fidelity and chastity and the pursuit of holiness and, and a sacramental way of life characterized by prayer and recognition of the, the family unit as a kind of domestic church and with a mission in society to sanctify the world by sanctifying ourselves. Uh, you know, few people are going to live that vocation perfectly. But uh, but to hold it in, in front of myself as an ideal, as the goal for marital life, I think is is not only possible, I think it's the only reasonable point of view that you can take. You know, my, my parents were not Catholics. Um, they were Christians. They were good people. They had a very excellent marriage. And uh, they taught me from a very young age. My mother used to quip. She would say, um, uh, murder maybe, divorce never. You know, and uh, it's joking, of course, but but the, but I had bred into me from a very young age the idea of the indissolubility of marriage as an absolute bedrock, non-essential uh, to my Christian identity and to my humanity, right? That uh, and and so you know, marital fidelity for me growing up, and particularly when my father treated my mother, uh, it wasn't just it wasn't just a standard for for Christian marriage. It became for me a kind of uh, standard of the kind of human being that you should be in the world, like the kind of person who could commit themselves to the cause of the good of another human being, to the good of those beyond himself, and literally give everything and be willing to die for the sake of this community called the family. And that's applicable even if you're not married. I mean, the idea that I'm going to give my entire life to the service of others, um, I mean, it's not only impossible, it's it's imminently livable. I mean, I've seen it lived charitably uh, with my own eyes. I mean, uh, I prefer to talk about my dad, who was a more virtuous person than I am. My dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease in 2020, 
And, uh, you know, in the last year of his life, he was completely paralyzed, and it's a miracle that he could speak at all. And But he could still speak with, he had to wear this mask and have, you know, artificial breathing, but he could still communicate. And I asked him one time, I said, Dad, you know, you're you're not going to make it a whole lot longer. I mean, you were at the end stages of a terminal disease here. How do you feel about dying? And he said to me, you know, David, uh, if I can't do good to my family, I'm not good to anybody. What, what good am I for if I can't be good for my family? And I feel like that I can still be good to my family, that I can do good to my family just by being alive. And, of course, he did. Like his presence, his kindness, his love, his counsel, his friendship was was infinitely valuable to us, even though he couldn't lift his own fingers. Uh, and he said, you know, as long as I can do good to somebody else, I want to stay here. And uh, But, of course, I'm going to go when the Lord takes me, and as soon as he's ready to take me, I'm ready to go. Uh, but that was his disposition toward the world. I'm here to do good to my family. And, um, you know, I... Uh, I tell you, in my own life, I I have uh, have I have grandchildren, have children, and uh, like anybody, I have my sort of down in the mouth moments when I feel sad or depressed or you know like what's the point of it all. And uh, recently, I I had a I believe it or not, I had a nihilistic thought pass through my mind, you know, a kind of uh, kind of temptation to hopelessness. And then I looked down at my two-year-old granddaughter. Every thought of nihilism went straight out of my head. Right, because the realization that I that there were people in my life that I could give my life for, that's that's lodged deep within the heart of the human spirit. The Catholic Church sanctifies that very reasonable moral intuition and comes along and says, We have grace to help you in that project, which is the only project. I'm glad that story ended the way it did. I thought you were gonna say you looked down and saw a pecan pie. <laughs> <laughs> that's another response to nihilism. <laughs> Chris is in Frisco, Texas, a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Chris, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Dr. Andrews. Hi, Dr. Andrews. Big fan. Um, my question is, uh, I'm in a lot of dialogue with uh, quite a few Orthodox friends, um, and their main hang-up, less on the issue of papal uh, primacy, uh, less on the issue of the filioque, Um their hang-up is uh, the uh, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And the objection that I have heard spouted from them is uh, they perceive it as actually insulting to the Blessed Mother, um, that her being uh, preveniently uh, preserved in grace would somehow make her sinless life um, less significant, or that her struggle for holiness would not be as significant had she been born without original sin. So I'm curious for, for the response on that. Yeah, and, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate that. I, I entirely disagree. I, I entirely disagree. You know, there is a parish in my diocese, I'm sure there's probably one in your diocese too, uh, named Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows. And Latin Catholic devotion to the Blessed Mother very much highlights her life of suffering. Uh, a sword pierced her soul, too, as Simeon prophesied. And uh, with holiness and charity comes a greater capacity to suffer. I mean, I, I know people who are selfish, egotistical you-know-whats, who care only for themselves, and who, who, who lack almost any ability to suffer empathy uh, out of concern for another human being's misery. Right, uh, uh, mercy really is the ability to feel in the depth of my own bowels uh, the hurt 
and the pain and the alienation of the other. And uh, I'm sure you've known people who are, are brutish and selfish and egotistical who really don't give a fig for the suffering of the world. Uh, and they lack that charity. They lack that grace. They lack that ability to really give themselves in love. Uh, you know, love is not a feeling. Love is really the capacity to take another person's concerns and issues and pains and sorrows as your own. And the greater you're perfected in charity, the greater your capacity to suffer. You know, um, in, in the modern world, Mother Teresa of Calcutta is re regarded by many people, and rightly so, as, as one of the greatest saints of the 20th century, maybe the greatest saint of the 20th century, whose entire life was given in service to the poor. And, of course, we now know something about Mother, Mother Teresa's interior life now that she's died. Her, her diaries and her letters to her spiritual director have been published. And if you read the inner life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, it was a life of unending in, in, interior pain. Uh, many great saints have had these, these tortured interior lives. Um, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that the Blessed Mother, because of, pr precisely because of her sinlessness and the prevenient grace that preserved her from every stain of original sin, suffered more than any other woman. Uh, I don't think that makes anything less of her holiness. Uh, I think I think it makes it makes the struggles that she have had that much more admirable. Uh, from a completely different point of view, um, you know I. The fact that someone is born with athletic talent, um, to my mind, doesn't take anything away from the glory of their accomplishments on the on the playing field, right? Um, it's what they do with it that matters. And so I think there's a lot of points of view you can bring to bear on on the 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 supernatural gifts that were given to the Blessed Mother, that rather than lowering her in our estimation, make us admire her all the more. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Rick is in the great state of Minnesota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Rick, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Doc. Uh, I did buy your book and read it, so tit for tat. I think you should buy my book and read it, too. Ha! <laughs> okay. But anyways, um, I'm really sorry for this question. I couldn't think up a good one for this month, but... Uh, speculative theology. Say a guy was born, started growing up, had a complete sex change operation, and uh, um, then he repented of all his sin, came crawling back to the Catholic Church. Could he be ordained? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So let me be real clear on one thing, so we're not confused. A biological female who subjects herself to any number of surgeries and procedures in order to appear biologically male, and who may think of herself as biologically male, from the Catholic Church's position, is a female. And no matter what cosmetic or hormonal changes that person undergoes, that person could never be ordained to the Catholic priesthood. Because only men understood in the way that people have understood that word for thousands of years can be ordained to the Catholic priesthood. What about someone who is genuinely a man who becomes emasculated? Um, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure what the, what the current teaching of the Church is. I, 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 I have this intuition that it's an impediment, um, uh, but, but you know, impediments can, can, can admit of exceptions, right? So there are, you, know, you can have an impediment and you can need a dispensation from it. But believe it or not, there used to be an impediment to ordination if you were incapable of kneeling. Right, because the right requires the priest to kneel. And uh, there was a time 
say, 100 years ago when a priest who lacked the ability to kneel, he had a, he had a bum leg, couldn't, couldn't be ordained. Well, obviously that could be dispensed with. Uh, this is much more serious than that. Could you be dispensed from that impediment? Like, this is really beyond my pay grade. I haven't looked into the question, but I, 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 I have a funny feeling about it. It gives me kind of a queasy-in-the-stomach feeling. Patrick is a first-time caller. He's in the great state of Louisiana listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Patrick, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Yes, doctor, thank you for taking my call. And my question deals with the precepts of the Catholic Church. In the, I must say, the old catechism, one of the precepts listed was to obey the laws of the Church concerning marriage. In the new catechism, that has been dropped out. And we place emphasis on marriage, but we no longer show it as a precept in the catechism. Why is that? Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know why it's not in the catechism. But it doesn't mean that Catholics are not bound to follow the precepts of the Church or its teachings regarding marriage, right? So by, by articulating precepts, you, you are calling Catholics' attentions to essentials of Catholic practice. So there's really kind of catechetical judgment that's being made there. And um, uh, I'm speculating here. I'm speculating here. Articulating a specific precept that says, and oh, by the way, you have to obey what we already told you to obey, makes the question of obedience to the Church's commands into a kind of second-order question that could could be read one of two ways, right? Like, oh, are you saying I don't really have to obey this but for a precept? You see what I'm saying? You know, not, if the Church commands it, you have to do it, period. Aman is in Atlanta, Georgia today. He is listening to EWTN Radio on YouTube. Aman, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, doctor. Hi. Uh, great speaking with you. Thank you. So my question, and just to preface it a little bit, I was not raised around Catholics. Um, I'm kind of new to the Catholic world. So um, my question is that, it seems there are a lot of Protestants who concern themselves with helping North Koreans in, in different capacities, either getting them out of North Korea or sending food in or sending radios in, things like that. But I see an absence of Catholics doing something similar. So I'm really interested to know if there's a cultural or theological reason why I wouldn't do that type of yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, the Catholic Church, of course, has great solicitude towards the suffering people of North Korea. By, by, by all means, it does. And Pope Francis has actually specifically signaled to the North Korean government that he is ready and willing to make a visit to the peninsula, to their part of the peninsula, the minute he gets an invitation. Um, I guarantee you, if, uh, if you were to go worship in the Catholic Church in South Korea, uh, you would find uh, a great deal of, uh, of, of anxiety and concern for the unification of the peninsula, for the reconciliation of North and South, for the for the re evangelization of the North Koreans on the part of the South Korean Catholic community, um, and when it comes to things like you know relief work, uh, the Catholic Church has agencies that are involved in in the alleviation of human misery all over the world, and has no uh, certainly doesn't prejudice the people of North Korea. I think the impediment to doing things on the behalf of the North Koreans is entirely on the part of the North Korean government which uh, obviously is, is very keen on excluding Christian influence of any kind, and the Catholic Church is regarded <clears throat> uh, as particularly pernicious. 
specifically because um, any any Catholic is bound in conscience to obedience to a foreign power, namely the Pope. And so that's why communist regimes around the world have always been deeply opposed to Christianity in general, but to Catholicism in, in specific. So are you suggesting that perhaps that might be why there seems to be less of a Catholic presence in that region? You know, I, I personally can't—I uh, mean, there are Catholics in North Korea, right? Um, I think his question is more about what is the international Catholic response to the situation in Korea. You know, um, the Catholic Church has— Or perceived lack or perceived, of response. Or perceived, yeah, and I can't, I can't affirm that there's a lack of response, right? I do know that the Catholic Church has an advantage over other ecclesial bodies um, because it can operate at the level of international diplomacy um, in ways that, say, the Southern Baptist Convention cannot, you know. We head now to Wenatchee, Washington. Martin is listening on Core Christi Radio. Martin, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Doc. How you doing? I'm all right. Thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, my question is, in Luke 22, uh, verse 35, it says, Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. What exactly does he mean by that? You know, this passage of Scripture is one of the most debated uh, passages of the New Testament and has been for 2,000 years. And there there have been no end of wild hypotheses about what Jesus meant. And so I'm, I am not about to settle the question once and for all right here. Um, probably one of the most outlandish interpretations was given by a pope, actually, Boniface VIII, um, articulated the theory of the two swords— Right, based on this passage, and he held that there were two swords, that there was a temporal power and an ecclesial power, and he had uh, rather um, uh, rather developed thoughts about the relationship of the spiritual to temporal power that he that he alleged to exegete out of this text. Um, uh, I don't think any Catholic pope today thinks that Boniface was the world's greatest exegete, right? Um, you know, my uh, my sense, and again, this is far from authoritative. This just is my own inclination is that this is a rhetorical exhortation that shouldn't be taken too literally uh, of Christ indicating that, that the Church is going to be involved in a lot of temporal conflict, that they're going to be persecuted, that, um, you know, that the situation for Christianity is going to be dire, but certainly shouldn't be taken as a command to military action. If you missed any part of today's program, or if you'd like to hear anything that you heard earlier again, you can check out the encore of College of Communion. That's tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Matt is a first-time caller in Southern Oregon listening on His Mercy Radio. Matt, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. David. My question is this. What does it mean to consecrate oneself to, say, the Sacred Heart of Jesus or the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Sure, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, in a broad sense, consecration refers to the setting aside of an object for a sacred use. And so there is clearly a sense in which every Christian is consecrated to Jesus by virtue of his baptism. In fact, we, we definitely are. Um, but there is a devotional tradition within Catholicism of making intentional acts of consecration, whether to Jesus or to the Immaculate Heart of Mary or what have you. And, and the, the purpose there is quite, quite literally to, to bring this self-donation before one's own consciousness and to, to render it more explicit and more intentional. And, and the end is, is always the same. It's to, it's to generate within ourselves devotional affections that will hopefully lead us to acts of faith, hope, and charity. 
Uh, Steve is in Wisconsin. He is listening to EWTN Radio today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Steve, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Hi, thank you, Dr. Andrews, for taking my call. Um, I have uh, two adult children who are uh, strong traditional math uh, uh, goers and, in fact, are sort of a conscious. And uh, we've had multiple discussions uh, that have confused me greatly because they are very concerned that uh, my wife and I uh, attend Novus Ordo Masses and feel that the, the Vatican II was the culmination of uh, a complete change in the intent and meaning of the Mass, and therefore the Mass is invalid, and therefore our, our souls are in danger of uh, uh, not being saved. And I, I can understand some of what they're saying, but not all, and I, do, I don't know how to respond to them. Yeah, thanks. I, I know. I know the position. I know the position. All right. So here's uh, at root. I, I think it's a mistake to go down the exegetical rabbit hole with Sedevacantists, because they are very keen on getting their texts and lining up their arguments. Their their highly speculative, discursive arguments, where they this council said that and this pope said this and and to make a textual argument that's extremely abstract and ultimately very remote, in my judgment, from the actual lived experience of Catholics. Um, when I read the Gospels, and I'm sure when you do too, I find that Christ condemned that way of being religious. So irrespective of your particular exegetical conclusions, Jesus was constantly railing against an attitude among the Pharisees that they would be declared righteous or found to be righteous by God, because they had all their theological and ritual ducks in a row. And he, he cut through that entire way of thinking about life to saying, you know, it, ultimately it's about do you care for the poor? Uh, do you, are, you, are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Uh, do you live the values of the Beatitudes? And uh, at least as I've experienced them, the set of encounters uh, and fundamentalists of all stripes are, are not known for their virtue or charity. They're known for their, their pedantic attention to, to abstruse doctrinal details and their ability or, or, or claimed ability to defeat people in rhetorical debate, not uh, by their overwhelming charity and humility. And, and uh, you know, if you have to stake a claim somewhere in your religious life, and there's this one claim on your, on your religious affections that requires you to become a narrow-minded bigot— and one that, that requires you to be a humble, open-minded, docile uh, disciple of Jesus who's willing to lay down your life uh, for the good of your neighbor, I'm going to go with the second and not the first. I'd probably tell them that I'm concerned for them as well. Right, exactly. <laughs> Carolyn is a first-time caller in Portland, Oregon, listening on our great affiliate there, Modern Day E-Radio. Carolyn, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. Um, I listen to you every day, and I'm, I really enjoy your program. Um, I have heard you talk about the um, confession, well, the, the boy with the baseball breaking the window. Well, I went to Catholic school 12 years, and I was always told that if you go to confession and you, you confess a good confession, and if you die then, you would go straight to heaven. And when I hear just about the window, I think maybe this is not right. Yeah, thanks, um, Carolyn. I really appreciate the question. Well, when you were in Catholic school and they taught you about confession, 
Did they not teach you that penance is an integral part of the sacrament of confession? Um, well, uh, like I said, they said if, if you, I don't, I guess not, I mean. Well, I mean, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and what the nuns should have taught you is that contrition, confession of sin, penance, and absolution are all integral parts of the sacrament. Penance is part of the sacrament. And, and so the, when you go to confession today, your priest absolves you of your sins, but he also imposes a penance. And, and completion of the penance is part of the sacrament. And that presumes that there is some act of reparation that we can make to God. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a way of approaching the sacraments or confession uh, specifically that I, I think is kind of fearful and craven and maybe a little neurotic. And it's the old, if I get hit by a bus, you know, before I finish my five Hail Marys, am I going to go to hell? And I think that's really construing it the wrong way. Um, the analogy with the kid with the baseball, or let's use another one. If you know, if I if I run into Jack's car as I'm leaving EWTN today, and it's his favorite car, and he's just got it all polished up and fancied, if I run in and and tell Jack I'm genuinely sorry, I, I feel quite certain that he would forgive me, and it wouldn't be the end of our friendship, our relationship. But there would be something really deficient in my repentance if I said, "Okay, well, I was going to give you the name of my insurance adjuster, but now that you've forgiven me, forget about it, you know, and I'll just I'll just go on my merry way." There'd be something really deficient in my own charity if that were the case. If reconciliation to God is about turning my heart back to Him, then I, then then intrinsic to that act of turning back to God is a desire to make reparation. It's not. I'm not buying God's forgiveness. That that's what repentance looks like. Now, of course, God's going to forgive me, even as Jack would forgive me if I were not if I didn't have insurance and I was living in penury. I mean, Jack might, out of the goodness of his heart, just say, "Well, forget it, Andrews. I'll just I'll just take the dent in my car." That's beside the point, right? So God is infinite mercy to be sure, but the act of turning to Him includes this desire to do right by Him, and that's what we call penance. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, celebrity producer today, Mr. Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our celebrity social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams sitting in for Tom Price. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with another edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless. God bless.